are Locked On Diamondbacks, your daily Arizona Diamondbacks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to the Locks on Diamondbacks podcast. You're part of the Lock on Podcast Network. I'm your host, Miller Thomas. And on today's podcast, we got Locked on Giants host Ben Kaspik on the pod to discuss Barry Bonds, his Hall of Fame case, of course. But also, I want him to illuminate for me what happened to Tim Lincecum and Matt Cain. Lincecum on this year's ballot, Matt Cain's on next year's ballot. And both of them had phenomenal starts to their career and then just kind of fell off so Ben Kaspik we're bringing him today to illuminate exactly what happened at the end of their careers and why were they no longer on the Hall of Fame track so I think it's gonna be a fun pod and an interesting pod so let's jump right into it you are locked on Diamondbacks your daily Arizona Diamondbacks podcast part of the locked on podcast network your team Every day. Miller Thomas of Lockdown Dimeback still here. I'm a multimedia journalist and I'm a graphic designer. So please go check out my website, MillerThomas24.myportfolio.com. On there, you can see all my latest work, my packages, to my articles, to my photos, and my graphic design. Thank you for making Lockdown Dimebacks your first listen every day. I would not be doing this podcast without you, the listener, sharing, subscribing, reviewing, doing all that so I could do this podcast for you. Thank you. But Without further ado, let's waste no more time. Let's bring on the man of the hour, Ben Caspic of Locked On Giants. Sir, how are you doing today? I'm doing as well as possible considering, you know, huge baseball guy and and looks like there's not going to be a spring training right around the corner. So uh, trying to cope with that right now. Yeah, how are you feeling with the lockout? Do you think it's going to go into the regular season or do you still think uh, there's still enough time for there to be an agreement eventually? I think that the only thing that's going to motivate them to really get down to it and and really give because frankly the you know the players want major change and the the league doesn't want to give it and the only thing that's really going to motivate either side to move off their positions is the threat of really seriously missing uh, games. And so I think we'll probably miss games. And the question is for me, just how many? Yeah. And I think it will be easier for the players to eventually compromise because MLB owners, I mean, they're rich, the billionaires, they can afford not to be paid. A lot of those MLB players, especially the minor leaguers and the young guys, like they're not getting, you know, the multi-million dollar contract. So those guys are not going to be paid if there's no regular season games going on. So I definitely think the Players Association will probably be more motivated and probably more likely to compromise because the owners, I mean, they could just take their foots in the ground and it's like, okay, if we're not playing, fine, we'll just sit on our yacht and keep making billions because we don't even need our team to do that. So we're not here to talk about the MLB lockout because there's really not too much to even talk about. I try to do pods on here where I do my little updates on it, but like, honestly, like there's just not much to talk about with the lockout right now. So let's move on, Ben, because I brought you on today because I want to talk a little giants actually, because of course, Everyone at the Lockdown Network has been doing their Hall of Fame pods recently. And you being the Giants guy, you had a couple of dudes 
on the ballot this year, Tim Lincecum and Barry Bonds. And we're going to talk about Tim Lincecum a little bit later and what happened to him throughout his MLB career. But you being the Giants guy, what was your reaction when you first saw Barry Bonds, 10th year on the ballot, and he's not making it in? What was your reaction? It it was not surprise. That's certainly uh, not an emotion I was feeling or a, a reaction I was having because this is the 10th year of this. And and I've become jaded to the whole process and, you know, those those uh, attempts that were made to kind of predict whether or not he would get in were indicating that he wasn't likely to get in. So I didn't have any real expectation that he was going to. It is disappointment. Uh, it is kind of sadness for him personally for because uh, I know he did care about this and... I mean, it's a it's an interesting topic. There's no doubt about it because no one will deny the numbers make him, you know, just by numbers alone, he's the most obvious Hall of Famer you could ever have. Ever. But obviously, it's a different conversation than just the numbers. I'm biased. I am a Giants fan. I grew up watching Barry Bonds and being a fan of Barry Bonds. And so I certainly would have voted for him, but it, it, it isn't just because I'm biased. I think it's more because this was a whole era and I think that we don't know who was using and who wasn't. So if you're going to vote for anybody at all from that time period, to me, you've got to vote for uh, Barry Bonds. And so when you're talking about that era, are you only applying it to guys like Roger Clemens and Sammy Sosa who are also speculated to do steroids? Or do you apply that logic to even guys like A-Rod and Mary Ramirez who have played during the testing era? Yeah, I do not apply it to guys who have played during the testing era and got caught. Once mm-hmm. there was uh, testing and once there were there there were positive tests and suspensions, then that takes you off the table for me. So so a rod, I mean the whole a rod thing is messy. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah, it's it's. So I probably I don't think I would vote for him. But look, it's complicated. If I had a vote, it would take you know you'd have you'd have to really dig in and look at every little fact you could but for me you know bonds it's obvious he he took performance enhancing drugs but he was still he was the best player among a large group of players who were using performance enhancing drugs and so the talent i don't think anybody denies even before he likely started he was probably i mean not even probably but certainly on a hall of fame track but you know, I think the a handful of writers just kind of wanted to stick it to Barry Bonds, and they did. Do you apply the same logic to a David Ortiz as well, who has some parallels to her A-Rod, but never tested negative outside of that, you know, Mitch report, which is very controversial itself. So how do you feel about David Ortiz along the same lines? It's complicated, and and I don't completely understand the full story. I know that he, like supposedly reportedly tested positive in 2003 Mm -hmm. but then there's some question as to whether the substance that he tested positive for was even banned at the time and so i don't fully know i think that's exactly kind of my point is that because i don't know i would just vote based on merit and to me he's he's a lot more borderline than barry bonds but i would probably (laughs) yeah if you're comparing him to barry bonds probably (laughs) But still, I, I'm I'm pretty sure I would have voted for him. And a lot of it is the kind of the reputation and the legend of David Ortiz, and he yeah. deserves it. So congratulations to him. 
It just kind of rubs me the wrong way, though, that he gets in on the first ballot with a little PED controversy mm-hmm. to his name and just a significantly worse player, which is not a knock on him as mo- as much as it is a credit to Bonds, whose numbers put him up there with the likes of Babe Ruth, Willie Mays as arguably the greatest player of all time. Yeah, and with David Ortiz, I think part of the reason, I mean, I thought, I didn't think it was weird that he was a Hall of Famer. I thought it was weird that he was a first ballot Hall of Famer, and I thought he was deserving of the first ballot. But just watching the voting process over the last few years and how these voters vote, I didn't think a guy who has been linked to PEDs and on that Mitch report and also only played DH, like I don't care that he's only played DH, but I thought that would be something that the writers cared about and that the fact that they actually voted David Ortiz in the first ballot like I was like oh that was actually like impartial and was actually like fair judgment when it comes to a player and whether or not he should make the hall of fame but when it comes to everyone else like this is where I have an issue with baseball and kind of like the whole hall of fame process in general sports like it's hard to really determine who's a hall of famer and who isn't and so do you feel like we might need to change the process eventually? Because to me, I just feel like these writers have just kind of abused their power over the years when guys like Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds. And yes, there's definitely some controversy controversy on their resume, but we know those guys are Hall of Famers. Like Brett Wheelhouse, I had him on the podcast the other day. Like he told me there's only like 100 MLB players in the Hall of Fame. There's been like 20,000 guys that's come through the league. Like how is that even possible? How are the guys littered on the top 25 list statistically not in the hall of fame so i just overall feel like there needs to be a change in the voting process maybe we give some coaches and players some votes maybe even expand it to the fans as well how do you feel about the voting process as a whole i don't know that i would go so far as to give it to the fans like on my first reaction is i i think about the fan voting for the all-star game and (laughs) the nba they 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 get it right to some degree but also there's a lot of kind of homerism and there's a lot of maybe uh they miss maybe some of the subtleties like the fact that a dh is just simply not as valuable as a guy who played in the field and played in the field well and so I think kind of the issue stems from the fact, I mean, it's a high bar to clear 75% of a large number of people, even a small number of people. It's hard these days in particular to get 75% of people to agree on anything, let alone who's a hall of famer and who's not. And so I don't know about changing uh, the rules simply because I don't know how I feel about certain guys having an easier time but you're right if if there's a flaw if just too too few players are getting in then something ought to be done about it so honestly the whole process i don't know if it's just me if it's kind of my generation or if it's me as a giants fan but i've kind of become jaded by the whole thing and it sounds like you maybe are there to an extent as well just thinking that the process doesn't really work all that well I'd be interested to see how it how everything kind of changes when we move past the steroid era guys <laughs> and to see if if maybe more guys get in cuz that's a big part of what's going on right now is that so many of the best players aren't getting in because of steroid implications. Yeah, that's pretty much the only reason. I mean, I don't think it's not like Barry Bonds has like off the field issues at least to my knowledge of, you know, things that would 
quote unquote, use the character clause against him. Like he's not out there saying Kurt Schilling level stuff. He's just taking steroids, which is, of course, not a part of the game. But, you know, baseball is turning the blind eye to it. So I'm like, let the steroid guys in. If you fail during the testing era, like you said, basically anyone that's failed post Mitchell report shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. And I don't think A-Rod actually ever tested positive outside the Mitchell report, but he's admitted to using steroids in the early 2000s. Then we had the whole biogenesis scandal where he's getting steroids shipped to his house so i think there's enough evidence with a rod to keep him out the hall of fame for steroid use but do you want to hear some barry bond stats ben before we get to segment number two and talk about the rest of your guys because i got some i got some barry bond stats i see your head shaking so maybe you i'd don't love to <laughs> okay. no no i'd love to i just there's so many ridiculous stats with barry bonds that i'm i'm anxious to hear what you have yeah, I try to find the craziest ones. I, I, I'm not going with, did you know he's the all-time leader in home runs? We're not trying to do the basic stats that everyone knows are Barry Bonds. But did you know 26% of all career plate appearances for Barry Bonds ended either in a home run or a walk? Think about that. Most guys in today's game, if they bat 250, it might be considered a decent season. If Adam Dunn batted 250 in a season, you're like, damn, was he an all-star that year? This guy, 25% of the time, he was either getting a home run or a walk. Absolutely insane. If you took out his seven MVP seasons, he would still have a higher career war than Ken Griffey Jr. Absolutely insane. He has the most 30-30 seasons in MLB history, and he's the only member of the 400 and 400 400 home run, 400 stolen base club, and the only member of the 500 home run, 500 stolen base club. So I think that's part of the game. That's a part of his game that gets forgotten about because, of course, I, whenever whenever anyone thinks about Barry Bonds, they think of steroids, they think of the home run, 73. But his speed is such an underrated part because I don't think people really, you know, attribute speed and steroids and really link them together, but. This guy was a freak athlete. This guy didn't really need steroids to be insane. Like, I think there's so many numbers with him where it's like, I, I don't think he actually needed the steroids. He was a three-time MVP, uh, what, before, uh, by the time he was like 30 years old. Like, this guy has so many different stats and attributes where it's like you could parse through his resume, parse through his statistical uh, career, and you're like, yeah, I could cherry pick certain stats out of his career wipe them away and he's still going to be a first ballot hall of famer if you bet you could take away his san fran career and he'd still be a first ballot hall of famer so for me barry bonds like the steroids we've ever already talked about like who really cares everyone's doing steroids he was by far the best player even if he was doing steroids he was just so much better than everyone else that might have also been doing steroids like who really cares at that point baseball was making money bonds was making money Everyone was happy. Baseball was at its peak. Like, let's put the guy in. He helped carry the sport there for a little bit. But, Ben, I think the real reason Barry Bonds got so big and powerful is not because of steroids. I think it's because of Bilt Bar, Ben. Have you ever heard of Bilt Bar? I sure have. Oh, man. Do you do you have a favorite flavor or anything? It's so hard to choose because they're <laughs> all good and there's like 25 of them or more. Oh, oh. there's a ton of flavors. And... Then it's also the new year. So that means New Year's resolutions. If yours is about getting fit or eating healthier, make sure you include Built Bar in your plan. Built Bar is a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. It's not like one of those protein bars that can be chalky or waxy or taste like a chemical spill. No. Built Bar, covered in 100% real chocolate, soft and easy to chew, low calorie, low sugar, high protein, high fiber, great for the keto diet. If you want your own Built Bar, just go to Built.com, use promo code LOCK15 for 15% off your next order. Promo code LOCK15 for 15% off at Built.com. 
Bet.com. All right, all right, Ben. Now, I want to talk about another giant that was on the Hall of Fame ballot this year, along with Barry Bonds. Now, they weren't teammates, but this was a guy who was crucial to the Giants winning three World Series, and that is Tim Lincecum. I actually found out this stat by Tim Lincecum, which was pretty wild. Let me see if I have it written down. If not, I remember it anyway. He is one of two pitchers all time with multiple World Series rings, multiple Cy Youngs, and multiple no-hitters. Do you want to guess who the other pitcher is? You might already know. Multiple rings, Cy Youngs, and no-hitters. He's one of two pitchers of all time. It would probably take me a minute to figure out. Is it a modern guy, or do you have to go back a little ways? You have to. He's probably probably from like the 70s or 80s, if I had to guess. Oof. I honestly don't know. Sandy Koufax. That was who I was going to guess. Oh, man. You should have said it. You should have said it. You would have looked like a genius on the pod. Yeah, him and Koufax are the only two pitchers in MLB history. Yeah, I think I knew that. I think deep down, like I had heard that from whenever it happened. It's at the top of his Wikipedia page, so I credit all my information to Wiki for Tim Lincecum. But he is someone that was on this year's ballot, Ben. I was kind of happy to see him on this year's ballot because growing up as a baseball fan, mid-2010s, like, Lincecum was one of the faces of baseball, the freak, one of the nastiest nicknames in baseball. But when I saw him on the ballot, I clicked on his baseball reference and I was left a little depressed because he has such a phenomenal start to his career. He kind of fell off at the end of it. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But were you surprised that Lincecum didn't at least get 5% of the votes? Like he's no longer on the ballot. He's gone forever. Did that, did that surprise you? It honestly did not surprise me, but it, mm. it definitely disappointed me. Uh, I understand, you know, the, this is another thing I don't really like about the Hall of Fame voting process, how they're limited to 10 votes. And so it kind of depends on who's on the ballot. Sometimes there's more. There, there's certain guys who you just don't have room for, even though, like, the chances of Lincecum ever actually making it in were next to nothing. But... I'd like to see him continue to get consideration. So it didn't, it definitely didn't surprise me, but it just like with bonds, it, it definitely did disappoint me. Yeah. And the thing with Lincecum and uh, the whole voting process, like you say, like uh, you, you wish that these voters had more, you know, you wish that they could vote for more people than just 10 on their ballot. But Even if they could, like we saw from this year, like guys were submitting blank ballots, guys were submitting ballots with just Jeff Kent or just Scott Rowland. So it's like, even if we gave this guy, even if we gave these voters the whole ballot to vote for as many players, you could click a a check next to every guy on the ballot. Like most of these guys still won't do it because a lot of them have biases and personal reasons and emotions as to why they don't. Like most of this stuff as to why the Bonds and the Clemens are not getting the Hall of Fame is more emotional than anything else. It's more personal than anything else. I don't even think it really has to do with what these guys, you know, have done in their careers on the field, off the field. Like I think these voters care more about their personal biases and personal feelings when it comes to the voting process, which should not be the case. So for Tim Lincecum, he was a four-time all-star, four straight all-stars, two straight Cy Youngs. At one point, I think he was on a Hall of Fame trajectory. When you look at his career, I got his baseball reference pulled up. 
He broke in 2007 as a rookie. And then from 08 to 2011, absolutely dominant. 2.62 ERA, 2.48 ERA, 3.43 ERA, then 2.74 ERA. Four straight seasons of dominance. Led the league in strikeouts for three straight seasons. Back-to-back Cy Young Awards. This guy was one of the best pitchers in baseball for a four-year stretch. And then Lincecum turns 28 years old. He has that 274 ERA, 27 years old, all-star. Then the next season, 2012, at 28 years old, 518 ERA, leads the league in losses. And that's basically the beginning of the end for Tim Lincecum. So, Ben, I want to bring you on today because Lincecum, I thought, was someone that was easily, if you told me after those first three, four years of watching him in baseball, I was like, oh, this guy's easily going to be a Hall of Famer someday. But it just kind of all fell apart for the guy in his late 20s, the time of your career where you should be entering your prime and getting better. Lincecum just kind of fell off. So can you kind of explain to me or, you know, shine a light? Like what basically happened to this guy? How did this guy go from one of the best pitchers in baseball to just a mediocre guy in literally less than a year? Yeah, I think it had everything to do with his his body. And I mean, obviously he was nicknamed the freak because he just had these very unorthodox mechanics and in a in an unorthodox way he was able to throw mid to high 90s when he burst onto the scene in uh, 07 08 09 and i think if you look at the average fastball velocity for him i'm i'm looking at it right now uh first year 94.2 second year 94.1 even in 2009 it dips almost two miles an hour down to 92.4, mm-hmm. then 91.3, back up to 92.3 in 2011, his last good year, as you said, and then 90.4, 90.2, 89.6, 87.2, 87.7. So fastball velocity is something we can point to right off the bat. If you're throwing 95 or 94, that is a big difference than if you're throwing 90. And everything kind of played off of the velocity. And so for me, it was the body and he start. he had little injuries. He had a hip issue. And, and if you think about his mechanics and the way he uh, contorted his body and, and wound up with a big turn and then the way he, he, he had a huge stride towards home plate too. And you need like really good hip flexibility to be able to make that move. And so I think that he started, I think he had, I don't know. I can't remember exactly what the hip issue was. I think he eventually needed surgery for it, but I think his body just started to break down. And when you're someone who relies so much on mechanics to be able to get freakish results, despite a smaller frame, then any kind of breakdown of the body leads to a breakdown of the way that it's, it's all moving together to be able to create uh, that elite stuff that we saw. And so Yeah, as soon as he started, I mean, if you look at the strikeout rates, they start going down year Mm -hmm. by year by year. And so he just became a lot more hittable. There was a lot more contact, and he couldn't just blow people away. And it was tough to watch. His his flame uh, burned brightly, but it also uh, burned out really fast. Yeah, I think the injury history is kind of what I overlooked during my research here because I'm looking at it now, that final season – in San Fran, he was diagnosed with a degenerative condition in both his hips that July. So, yeah, that's probably the beginning of the end right there. And it's alarming when you look at his fastball rate throughout the years because 
He broke in 08, like I said. So in 08, he's averaging 94 and a half miles an hour on his fastball. His final season in San Fran, again, it was a small sample size in San Fran that final year. He only started 15 games that final year, but his fastball dropped to 82 miles an hour. He from he went from mid-90s to barely cracking 80 miles an hour as a pitcher. Like, yeah, you're going to be done pretty quickly if your fastball is taking a tick off seemingly every year after your four-year prime. So it, it's not a surprise. It was probably hard for him to adjust to that fall because it felt like he was falling and declining quickly and he couldn't adjust to as quick as he was declining. Plus you throw in the degenerative hip condition and all that other uh, issues with injuries and things like that. Like it's not a surprise to see why the end of his career kind of flamed out because like I said, this was legitimately arguably the best pitcher in baseball for a four-year period. And then he just turned out to be just bad, just plain bad. And you saw the rise of some other pitchers on the Giants staff, of course, Madison Bumgarner. And then a guy we're going to talk about here in the segment number three, Matt Cain, just kind of came in and took his spot. But Matt Cain's an interesting case because he has a career very similar to uh, Tim Lincecum. But I'm not ready to talk about Matt Cain yet, Ben. You know what I'm ready to talk about? Bet online. Have you... Where, where are you, Ben? Are you in California? I am, yeah. Is sports betting legal out there yet? I don't I think I it don't is. don't believe so. Oh, it's not? Dang. We got to get you guys legal out there. But I don't think it's legal in Texas. And Brett Wheelhouse was telling me he can still go to bet online and wager, even though I don't know how that works. But bet online has been great for us here at the Locked On Network because bet online has you covered this season with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. As football continues its march to the playoffs, right to the big game in a couple weeks, betonline.net remains the best spot for all your sports scores, podcasts, and news this season. And it's not just football. BetOnline has up-to-the-minute info on pro and college hoops, NHL, boxing, UFC, along with live real-time updates of current games. Don't wait to take advantage of all the new amazing offers available for the 2022 season. BetOnline, where the game starts. Now, Ben, the final guy I want to talk about in today's pod before we wrap it up is a Matt Kane because, like I said with Tim Lincecum, he broke in in 2007's rookie year. He goes, you know, four straight all-star appearances, two Cy Youngs, and then he's done by the age of 28. But when you look at Matt Kane's career, it is eerily similar to a Tim Lincecum because he breaks in. He's a rookie in 06. He's pretty good those next couple years but then 09 to 2012 he is one of the best pitchers in baseball he's a 289 era 314 288 then 279 that 279 is in 2012 the year after the final season of tim lincecum lincecum's final year being an all-star and being a quality pitcher was 2011 kane was an all-star in 2012 but after 2012 he fell off because 279 era in 2012 final all-star appearance then it goes four 418, 579. He just falls off a cliff just like a Lincecum. And it happens one year apart, which I think it's just so weird. Like the Giants were this team. If you told a Giants fan, like if I told Ben Caspic in 2010, 
your two best pitchers were going to be irrelevant in three seasons. Like you have been like, yo, what are you talking about? You're crazy. Lincecum and Matt Cain are going to be the pillars of my franchise for the next decade plus. And I got a massive bum garner. Like we are going to be stacked for the next 10 to 15 years. But little did you know, it was really going to be less than four years where you're like, whoa, how did our rotation go from arguably the best in baseball and one of maybe the best rotations of the last, you know, 25 years to now it's Bumgarner and a bunch of guys. Like, what happened to Matt Cain's career where he starts out like a Tim Lincecum on fire and then just kind of flames out at the end? Honestly, the the kind of boring answer is I think it was more of the same. They were mm. different types of pitchers. Matt Cain yeah. was more kind of traditional, big-bodied, uh, big-frame, right-handed uh, pitcher. And he, I mean, he threw a lot of innings up until the point. Like, if you look at... Starting in his rookie season, he threw 191 innings, and then he threw 200 innings in one, two, three, four, five, six, six consecutive seasons. Which, yeah, you know, he was his nickname was the horse because he just he was like steady every day, every fifth day, go out there and give you a lot of innings. And so, um, those guys, I mean, look at Madison Bumgarner now. You want to talk about another giant? <laughs> I don't want to talk about him. <laughs> suddenly, just immediately fall off a cliff at a certain point, and it seems to just be a trend with pitchers. I think the last time we talked, we looked back at uh, who were the top five starting pitchers five years ago, according to MLB trade rumors, and it was a bunch of guys that you'd be shocked that to know they were even ever considered top starters because it happens so fast and like you said Lincecum and Kane 2010 even 2011 2012 you're, think, you're thinking of them as frontline guys and then 2013 comes around right around then and it was a completely different story but for Kane he also dealt with injuries if you look at uh, 2013 he threw 184 innings but then after that 90 innings 60 innings mm-hmm. 90 innings so he just dealt with constant injuries uh, he had bone chips in his elbow uh, i remember that being one of the yeah. last things to do him in he had surgery to remove those bone chips at some point and more of the same if you lose velocity on your fastball uh suddenly when you're when you're throwing 94 you can just kind of attack the zone but when you're throwing 90 you can't and he never really adjusted as as lincecum never really was able to adjust and um I think we've seen the exact same thing out of Madison Bumgarner. I'm sorry to bring it up, but <sighs> declining fastball velocity and worsening results and it and it happening really fast. Yeah, I feel like at least with Bumgarner, it feels a little bit more gradual. I mean, obviously, when you go, compare his Giants career to the D-backs career, it doesn't seem gradual at all. But those last few years in San Fran, you could definitely see the ticks of the decline. And then he just falls off completely with the D-backs. But at least it felt a little bit more gradual with the Bumgarner. With Linza come in, Matt Cain, like they were legit one season. They were a top three pitcher in baseball. And then they come in the next year and they're mediocre at best. And Matt Cain, there's kind of a funny quote in here. I guess it's not that funny, but he comes back in 2015 after elbow surgery. And he says he feels like he's 18 again. And then he immediately gets placed on the disabled list and finishes the year with five, seven, nine ERA. So I guess it's safe to assume he wasn't feeling 18 again, but I remember Matt Cain because I remember he got that fat contract back in 2012 i think i have it here it was a five-year 112 million dollar contract like were you guys still paying him throughout all those injured seasons was he still getting all that money from you guys he literally signed that contract 
after right after his last good year. even like respectable season. So it was a five year contract and each and every one of those five years was not good. And so Giants fans have kind of a good recent memory of the risks of long term deals for starters. Lincecum, I say this, you know, I love the guy and I want him to get all the money in the world, but it, the Giants are fortunate that they didn't sign him to a long-term deal. He was always on these shorter-term deals. But with Kane, it was a five-year contract. And yeah, the entire time, uh, the Giants were paying him and the performance just wasn't there. Before the contract, he had a, what was it, a uh, 3.27 ERA in 236 games, 1,500 innings. After the hundred and uh, it was actually 125 million with uh, signing bonus plus a, a buyout of a club option, but after the contract, a 4.82 ERA in 550 innings over five years. So they paid him for his past performance, and yeah, it's pretty crazy to think that the whole contract was bad from day one. And you know what's also crazy is the reason Lincecum didn't get that contract is because he turned it down. I'm looking at Wikipedia. They said the season before the 2012 season, which was the season where everything went downhill downhill for Lincecum, he rejected a five-year, $100 million deal. So you would have been in the exact same situation with Lincecum. I'm assuming if you sign Lincecum, then maybe you don't do that massive contract for Matt Cain. But assume there's a world where you signed Lincecum and Matt Cain because you're like, let's lock up our rotation into one of the best in baseball. And now you got two guys on triple-digit contracts, you know, $100 million, That's what I'm considering, triple digits. And they're just not playing for you. And when they are, they're just not productive. So there's a world where the Giants are going through this five-year period where they basically can't sign anyone because all their money is going toward two players that are literally not even on the diamond. So... Even though you caught a bullet with Matt Cain, you might have missed a bullet with Tim Lincecum because he ended up just signing for two years, $40 million deal. When you look back at it, you're like, whoa, thank God he rejected the $100 million deal because you would have been screwed and handcuffed to Lincecum for the rest of his career. But as we said earlier, Matt Cain on next year's Hall of Fame ballot. So do you think he's going to get the same treatment as a Tim Lincecum be one and done or looking ahead to next year's ballot? Like it's really not that deep. It's not that strong. So do you think he might actually get to the 5% and maybe stick around for a couple of years? I don't. I think Lincecum uh, probably had a better <laughs> shot just because the peak was so much yeah. higher. Kane was always very good, but he never was as good as Lincecum at his peak. When Lincecum was... At his peak, he was the best pitcher in the game, but Kane was never the best pitcher in the game. Uh, the one year that, that really stood out was 2012 when he threw a perfect game, mm-hmm. one of just 23, I believe, in Major League history, and then he he was the anchor of a rotation that won a World Series. So it really did seem like Kane was fully arriving on the scene and perhaps taking a, another step forward after being so good, becoming maybe great, but then immediately... Yeah fell off a cliff. And I must say that I believe that had something to do with it. There's talk that he was kind of burnt out uh, by the time the postseason came around, but he uh, he wanted to take the mound and pitch for the Giants in the playoffs and be reliable and help them win, which they did, but that he may have kind of done himself in by overextending himself that postseason. 
That's interesting. And when you look at him and Tim Lincecum, like they're both guys who Lincecum was the first guy to throw a no hitter at the Giants ballpark. Kane was the first guy to throw a perfect game at the Giants ballpark. And both of them careers started hot, flamed out uh, earlier than we expected. Both of them seem to have Hall of Fame talent, but both of them, their careers didn't end up in a Hall of Fame manner, which is very surprising. Both of them World Series champions. So they're still going to mean a lot to Giants fans. They still, I'm sure you're still team Lincecum and team Matt Cain all the way, but it's definitely, I think, a little sad considering where their career was at one point, the career, the, the peak that those two had and how it ended up. Like, I'm, I'm shocked to see that those two guys were not productive pitchers in their 30s, even before their 30s. That the fact that they were not that good by the time they were 29 years old is absolutely crazy to me. Ben, do you have any last thoughts on Lincecum Bond or Matt Cain before we depart today? It just tells me how hard it is to become a Hall of Famer because these are, I mean, Bonds, the talent is there. Lincecum and Kane certainly had a chance, but then it's hard to stay healthy and productive throughout a career. So kind of my final thought is, well, this was an era where uh, we saw Bonds be the greatest player maybe of all time. We've seen three world championships in San Francisco and some really good players along the way. But it looks like there's probably only one Hall of Famer going to come out of all of that, and that's Buster Posey. So yeah. I'm kind of putting my hopes on Posey. What's that? I'm gonna. He has a shot. You're He's right. He, he definitely has a shot because of the postseason stuff. Uh, the the regular season numbers kind of yeah. don't really add up, but the postseason stuff is legendary. So, yeah, he's got a shot. I think he'll survive past one year, but Posey, I think, will actually get in, and, and I hope so. Yeah, I think Bumgarner definitely has a shot just because I'm looking at his uh, career. He's got multiple seasons with an ERA below three, four straight all-star appearances, and then a bunch of 200-inning seasons. And then, of course, he's one of the best postseason pitchers we've ever seen. So I think he has at least a stronger case than someone like Mark Burley, who's still on the ballot. So, oh, yeah. So I, I think we're in agreement there. Borderline Hall of Famer for Madison Bumgarner. I don't think I would give him my vote. But I think I would have to go back and look at the numbers and really do a deep dive before I said anything. Ben, for the people only listening to the audio and not the YouTube today, where can they find you on social media? Uh, on Twitter, at Ben Kaspik, and then show account, Locked on Giants. Yeah, you got the best. You? you got the best Twitter handle. Let me just say that first, because I don't have to do no thinking. It's just your first name, last name at Ben Caspic. Everyone else, I got H Town Wheelhouse and all these guys. <laughs> I'm like, who is H Town Wheelhouse? It's just gonna yeah, get confusing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't even know. So, and for me, for the Giants listeners, at Creator Thomas Twenty Four for my personal account, or just Google Lockdown Diamondbacks on Twitter and Instagram for the podcast handle. Ben, thank you for hopping on today, sir, and please enjoy the rest of your week and your weekend. You too. That's it for this edition of the Locked on Dimebacks podcast. Shout out to Ben Kaspik for hopping on today. Go back and check out any podcasts you might have missed this week, like Monday's pod discussing the 2023 MLB Hall of Fame ballot or who should be starting for the D-backs at third base in 2022. Of course, thank you for making Lockdown Dimebacks your first listen every day. I would not be doing this podcast without you, my loyal listeners. It's free and available on all platforms, so please continue to tell your friends. If you want to put some extra money in your pocket, go make your second listen of the day. Lockdown bets with your boy Q and handicapping expert Lee Sterling because they will keep you up to date with the best bets in the sports industry and of course come back next week for more dimeback news coverage and insight and as always stay safe and stay healthy deuces